chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. So what I want you to do this morning is I want you to look at this gallery of portraits. This you, is actually how we begin many a, a Wednesday morning. Are you, this is the presidential portrait gallery. Yep. Are you? George Washington is wanting someone to pass him the remote. George Washington, very, I'm going to call it Baroque. Historians of art will tell me I'm wrong, but oh, he's carrying a sword. So he better get that remote. In a class, did anyone ever do this where you flipped through the National Portrait Gallery and... No. The, the question here is go through... Just whatever comes next. Still, I want you to start no. clicking through. Yep. And uh, there sort of is a hiccup in the middle, but try to define the moment when this kind of... Uh, this vague smiley smirk enters the presidential faces. Well, it looked like... That guy had one, just a little bit. That, uh, yeah. Who's that? When you get to, you'll know. Let me just tell you, it's not going to be fleeting. Thomas Jefferson. Mm. You will know. Okay. Cruising along, cruising along. Right. Widow Peak, bald, corner of the eye. It's taking a while. Oh, swords again. Keep going. Yeah. Who's the, ooh, that guy's unfortunate. Oh, we know. Lincoln, there's a familiar Abe, face. Yeah, he's no. a... Yeah. Yep. Grant. Mm-hmm. None of these guys made it into Some any beards. kind of currency. There's a little stage in the middle where they're looking into the middle distance. That guy could have All been a Russian. Guys. Are we sure he wasn't a Russian? How long has <laughs> there, this influence been going on? What Americans are. That guy for sure know. Ted Roosevelt never smiled. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't know how, unless talking about a kill. Um, these guys are all sucking on lemons. Oh, no. Oh, here we go. Oh, this is what I'm, I'm going to go ahead Truman? and influence you here. Oh, you can't miss that one. You know, that's I look at Eisenhower. Yeah. Eisenhower Lemon. looks like the first person you don't have a conversation with. Right. Okay. You can keep going. Go, go all the way to the end. Uh, okay. kind of a, kind of a bummer there with Kennedy. Nixon always scary. Um, and we lose it for a while. Oh, oh wow. Oh my gosh. Are those the first teeth we've seen? Those are the first Ronald teeth. Ronald Reagan, first teeth we see. And so far the last teeth we've seen. Oh, oh my gosh. How come he doesn't get a painting? He's just a picture. He actually has a 3D portrait. It's this whole thing. That Obama is, like is crazy. That, that and whoa. So we'll, just, we'll, we'll talk about that one. Uh, this is interesting to... People who write about emotions because there's sort of a debate that I stumbled on. Okay. And it was, are the presidents trying to represent themselves differently? Like how much is uh, the development of smiling in the presidential portraits an indication of people changing, what we want in a president to be different over time? Mm Mm-hmm. 
And how much is it the same core f- traits that are expressed differently over a period of a couple hundred years? Okay. I I don't feel like I have a, a dog in this fight. You don't in the uh, in the debate of how the presidents are feeling. You don't want to drop what you're doing in Russian to the fray. You know, what comes to mind is like, isn't it just old fashioned? Like the way that people wouldn't smile in photographs because maybe it would take too long. Like that's the the theory. That theory is really interesting because you go, it has to be the technology. They have to sit for a long time. It's easier to relax your face. But if you actually start tracing back the history of human emotions, about the time that people start thinking of happiness in terms of smiling, people start smiling in photographs. So there are are multiple things going on here. But with presidents, what we want in presidents, people seem to think is the same. Hmm. But the way that they embody it and what they think it would look like changes. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Culture is changing. But we still want authority, wisdom, power, those sorts of things in a president, in a leader. Right. And, And what would confidence look like? How... Does he look proud or self-satisfied? Right. Which of those do we even think is a human state? Yeah, yeah, sure. What this gets into quickly, one other data point before we jump into the main conversation here. Uh, just this weekend, Em and I watched, rewatched. It's one of, I kid you not, like, I think we own six movies. Yeah. One of them is Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> of course. Which is so good. Also, director Joe Wright... I like pretty much everything he does. Uh, Darkest Hour, recently, that was him. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic movie. But one thing that I noticed was how Miss Bennett, Elizabeth Bennett, main character's mom, very well played in that film, her concern is always for her nerves. And mm. when she talks about an emotional, what we would call an emotional state, she's going, doesn't you care about my nerves or my nerves are feeling relief and you can go oh my goodness you have a model where you think that you have this thing called nerves Mm -hmm. and it's like a psychophysical thing that is impacted by whatever is happening socially so if you are feeling a negative emotional state it's actually this ecosystem of your nerves suffering if you're being positive your nerves are flourishing and she and she's bringing i just fascinated watching the movie going wow you have this whole model of what you are and therefore what an emotional state is and it's totally influencing the kinds of things you do and the kinds of things that you can say about yourself yeah in that whole world it feels like that gets slapped into the medical conversation you're like i've got nerves and i also use leeches to cure my illness and therefore our medicine and our self-understanding is moving in a better direction. But I uh, aren't you feeling a little bit like our emotions are getting dumbed down again or yes. simplified? Though maybe we've experienced them as human beings in their full spectrum probably always. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Well, yeah, the conversation today is emotions. And... In case the uh, the presidential portraits that you couldn't see didn't tip you off. And one of the things uh, that kind of got us going here was 
reviewing our emotional dialogue. What are the words that people currently use? And I think you could sort of, uh, you could do a one-to-one correlation to emojis. Right now you could go, the first round of emojis, you could like on Facebook, but then you could be sad, angry, happy. Yeah, they evolved from like the semicolon and the those little apostrophe things. And like that was what you could do. It was about as complex as a semicolon and then a capital D. So like, I'm happy. I'm really happy. But there was like 10 emotions. Exactly. And now if you have an iPhone and you look at the emotions you can pick from, you have more. But at the end of the day, you have not very many. What emotion would you say the cryy face is? And not not the one that's like tears I'm sad, the one that's tears streaming down your cheeks. <laughs> well, I mean, they seem to be just different degrees of the same emotion. Yeah. So there's like, I mean, there's a subculture in the way that the emojis have taken on and come to mean, but the difference between the tears running down in rivers versus just one tear just seems to be how sad you're feeling. A little bit or a lot of bit? A lot of bit. <laughs> yeah, and and it can also mean the opposite of that, but we don't actually have a word for, you know, what do you call uh, tears streaming down your face that you feel when someone who you had made fun of before achieves something and then thanks you as an influencer, even though you didn't have goodwill for them. Right. That complex mix of ambivalence, guilt, relief. Shame. Shame. Does that, you know, we have to pick words and shove them together. Right. And that's an okay thing to do, but it's very reductionist. One of the points of this conversation is we live under the influence of a guy, Robert Plutchik. Plutchik? Not entirely sure how you say his last name. Either way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's your last name. Yeah, so was he, but he wasn't sorry. He was sad. <laughs> uh, he had he he built this wheel of common emotions, and and this is what he did. He was he said there are eight emotions: fear, anger, sadness, joy, disgust, surprise, trust, anticipation. Mm. Yeah, because we need we need the blinders put on us, right? I mean, we we need some focus. Otherwise, who knows what we might feel? Well, <laughs> uh, or uh, on the other hand, we might be being shoved into these categories that are actually limiting what we think our experience is, limiting what we think we are. Right. But I mean, his his work. I mean, it's the color wheel, and it has degrees. Like that can that's super helpful to a point to be like. I need some language. We need some shared vocabulary for these experiences. Um, otherwise, language begins to fail. And this internal thermometer that is emotion seems to not be very helpful if I can't express it. You know, what we need to do really quick is just a history of where we started to think of ourselves as emotional beings, which starts... 17th century, 1600s, there is a scientist who is watching criminals being executed. He's standing there in the crowd. And one tends to get introspective during such moments. Well, during the Enlightenment and, you know, the scientific revolution, the go-to place to get a body to dissect was an execution. 
because nobody cares what happens to a criminal body. And they're fresh. And they're fresh. Oh, gosh. Uh, you could Never mind. I'm not going to make that humor any darker. <laughs> but he's watching criminals executed, and he's, he's noticing things happening to their bodies that don't seem to be directly under their control. Like, some are shaking beforehand. Some are turning red. Some are sweating. Some mm. are pale. And interestingly enough, because his worldview is shaped by the scientific revolution, he is, you know, sympathetic to mechanical models, like uh, if this, then that kind right. of read of human beings. Yeah. And so he sort of suggests, are there core things that just happen? Like if you hold up a gun, won't something happen to a person? If you hold up a picture of a puppy, won't something happen to them? Isn't there this kind of if this, then that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so a hundred years or so go by. Nobody takes much notice of this until uh, you're in Edinburgh. It's the 1830s. And because... It's the Industrial Revolution because Europe is modernizing. You're having, you're having public lectures and academics from different countries are going back and forth and it's cool to give talks. Thomas Brown, an academic, holds out this idea and he goes, um, look, we ha we've been looking at criminals for a while. There was this other guy, wish I could remember his name, and he thought that there might be a one-to-one -one correlation I think that's right. And so we need a new word. Um, there's a, an emotional researcher, Dr. Tiffany Watts-Smith, whose book um, I'll refer to a lot in this podcast, who pointed out that if you look at culture, if you look at cultural artifacts and ephemera, before 1830 and this moment with Thomas Brown, people didn't feel emotions. Uh, they felt passions. They felt accidents of the soul. They felt moral sentiments. And they might even use words that we would think of as emotion words, but they didn't consider it an emotion because the word emotion just means to stir up. And it could be used to describe a tree being moved by the wind. You can emote your cup of tea to get your sugar to dissolve. And Thomas Brown goes, this is what an emotion is. An emotion is uh, this a neuromechanical response to a, sh to a shared stimulus. So people might vary a little bit, but mostly they'll respond in the same way. And he basically pushes the first domino that results in psychologists like Paul Ekman, the living guy, who goes, oh, eight emotions. There's only, you know, you have chick. Eight, and you have Ekman, who has eight emotions. There's only six emotions. Fear, anger, blah, blah, blah. And they just kind of go, yep, there are all experiences can be boiled down to experiences of a few different kinds. And those experiences will produce predictable outcomes on people, regardless of circumstance, regardless of where they are, regardless of time period. And the problem is that we end up in a moment where people have very little language for what their heart is doing. Right. Isn't that funny that there was a point in time where people had to do this? They're like, I keep crying after someone tells me a sad story. Does everybody else keep crying? Okay, this should be a scientific study. This is the stimulus. 
I am the tea. The sad story is the spoon. The result is that everybody's crying. And you're like, okay, yeah, these are, these are helpful tools. But as you're saying, up to a point, like, and we will begin to flesh this out a little bit because the complexity of emotion, the, the range, the nuance is very important. And we have lost a lot of that. I'm friends with what feels like a disproportionate number of therapists than the average person. And they were really excited and continue to be excited about the movie Inside Out. And looking at Inside Out, you could be like, this is exactly the problem that it's what five emotions. It's anger, sadness, fear, disgust, envy. I don't think there's envy. I think it's, yeah, no, you add it's joy, sadness, joy. That's what it is. is. Joy. Um, Five. And you're like, surely people are more complex. And they sort of tease that out in the film towards the end where they're like, you can have multiple emotions at the same time. And it creates different things. And you're like... But it's still just a swirl ice cream cone. Right, right. Um, And what's interesting is that it, it actually indicates that we've gone even further than those five or six or eight categories suggest. Like you're worried about this reductionism to are you angry are you happy are you sad are you hungry are you tired okay you're just like a robot with a few big buttons and therefore you're very simple and simply falling apart and this excitement in the therapeutic counseling world about this film reveals that a lot of people are even not in touch with those and they try to push those back and i've like i've asked a few people about why they're so excited about this because I got kind of irritated. I'm like, people, get in touch with your emotions. You should not need a Pixar film to know if with you are five happy different emotions. Or, or sad. Like this, surely you'll have some other cue. But what's interesting is like the, the nuance of people's stories already begins to pop up. The film gave people vocabulary that was distinct from them and also a part of them. And so people's stories, if they were in their past angry at someone, they may be really reticent to say that they were angry because they feel this need to protect that past version of themselves and that past version of a family member maybe. And so they just can't do it. They won't admit it. But if anger can be somehow slightly apart from them and them, they're able to like actually engage their stories. And so this is why therapists are particularly excited about it because it's giving people a vocabulary. And yet you're like, the vocabulary is even more simple than the eight or the six categories you had started with. Further revealing like the current state that we're in of like, are our emotions us? How many are there? How nuanced are we? And I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, exactly. And we're concerned because if we assume that the heart is the center of human existence, it would make sense for us to invest quite a bit of time in mapping the landscape of the heart, the kinds of experiences that a heart can feel, the kinds of complexity, simply because it's the epicenter of your being. The problem with reductionist models is uh, they're sort of inappropriate use. We use reductionist models when we need efficiency and when things really don't matter. And so if you're shopping for a used car and it doesn't totally matter and you have a conversation with your wife, say you're navigating and you go, 
What colors do you like? Uh, white, blue. I don't like red. You know, tan slash beige is okay. You've actually just done some pretty effective reducing things into these huge categories where you go, I don't know, is white manila? Is blue cerulean azure? Is that beige color, does that extend into amaranth? Because we go, the expert has a lot of words for things. The expert notices detail, uh, whereas the amateur or the person to whom it's not important, and it's okay for not everything to be important, can use bigger categories. The heart is important. And these reductionist models import a view of people, and they go, pretty simple. Right now, the psychological world is really excited about neurochemical, neurobiological models, which is sort of going, chemicals in the brain. And we go, chemicals in the brain? Is the Alice of Alice in Wonderland like black ink on a page? Or is she the atom between? Like, If you're looking at just the empirical, what is there, you are missing the reality of the experience. And I think everybody knows this, because if you take it back to everybody's going to have the same experience from the same stimulus, you're going to go, well, no. To an extent, if you tell me a sad story, or you tell anybody a sad story, there will probably be an experience of grief or sadness upon hearing it. But that does not apply across the board. For some people, seeing a dog or a puppy brings joy. For others, it brings terror because of their story. And there's like, you just, your math equation, your, your computer input output for human beings and emotion and stories breaks down with just a little bit of prodding. Exactly. And again, we're assuming here that people matter. The heart is the epicenter of human existence. And therefore, like spending some time acquainting yourself with emotions and the language of the heart, because in fact, there's no scientific consensus on what what an emotion is. I'm just going to repeat that. You can define the word emotion, but when we talk about the state we're trying to describe, there's no consensus on what that thing is, what it means to be body, soul, and spirit working together. The heart is a mystery, folks, (laughs) which doesn't mean that it's not real, which doesn't mean that it's not important. We're actually saying the opposite. It's central. So this isn't like a postmodernism type conversation where it's, yeah, we can't really define it, and it's going to be different for everyone. Therefore, that doesn't really matter. It's like, no, no, no. The last, the therefore is not actually where we're landing. The therefore is, therefore, engage it more, as we will begin to right, right now. And there is something, we like words. and Surprise. The words can be exclusive and can miss the point. They also are incredibly effective at making the point and making connection someone describes an emotional experience to you and gives you a new word and you go, oh my gosh, yes, ennui. I'd never dealt with that one. Even ambivalence, I didn't know. And then you start feeling ambivalent all over the place. But just a recent example is last night, after Alois was in bed around 9 o'clock, I went over to smoke a pipe with a couple friends in the neighborhood, catch up. We're sitting outside. It's freezing. And it's supposed to be summer, but it's still cold. The guy whose house it did suggests, let's do this. Why don't we go inside? You guys build a fire. I'm just, I'm just going to pretend it's not summer and get, a, get some almond milk hot chocolate going, and we'll continue this conversation. 
and I go, okay, you're with friends, you've been outside, it's like been windy, you're kind of curled against it, you come in, build a fire, continue this conversation that you're really enjoying, updating people in your life, and go, there was an emotion there. Was it just joy? Or, you know, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, was it the hard-to-name koshlig, the experience of connection and coziness? Or was it this Japanese word, amae, I'm for sure not saying that right, amae, uh, which is the feeling of safety during total surrender, the experience that you have being vulnerable in the sight of love and go, whoa, all of a sudden my own experience and my own perception of my experience improves such that I can engage it more deeply, connect, know my own heart. Right. I like, I want you to pause listener and think about the last audiobook that you enjoyed. Did the reader read it in a deadpan voice without inflection or emotion or were they delivering these sentences with color and difference? Don't you like being around those people? Don't you find that sometimes going to see a counselor who can help put words to what you are feeling is super helpful? Like this, this study of yourself, of knowing what's going on beneath the surface is a, is a dramatic and necessary thing because it draws us to others. It draws us to God. It helps us engage our stories. I have a friend that I will not throw under the bus, but you will know who you are when you listen to this, who years ago was at probably, I would say, the baseline of emotional awareness where this person would cry upon an experience and have no idea why or what the emotion was behind it. There's like, water is coming from my eyes. And then sometime after the event, they would have processed a little bit and they're like, oh, I was sad because this was happening or, oh, I was happy because this was happening. But in the actual moment, they had no idea. And this was so startling to me. I wrote it down because I was blown away by what was the beginning of a journey of understanding emotions. And it was truly beginning with a place of, I am the ship tossed at sea. These things are going on, but I do not have the language and I have not spent the time learning to define what's going on. And therefore I'm, I'm not, I'm a participant in it. I'm not actually engaging it. Um, I do think it's interesting that cultures that have these very specific words for emotions that are clearly very complex, like we like them more and more where they're growing. So you've got a hundred emojis plus, but they communicate essentially five different emotions. And you couldn't put a word which is the best repository of experience right. to that emoji. So you've already brought this. You've already begun to. I I was watching an episode of uh, Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, and he was in Portugal, and they were describing this word, saudade, and it's this longing for a time or a place that maybe they never even experienced, but like it's a, it's a phenomenon that the entire people of Portugal can name. And I was struck by like, okay, how many other cultures are experiencing this same emotion that is part longing, part memory, part wanting a home? Maybe you've never even been there. And so I just did a quick Google and I came up with four others. So there's Saudade, that's Portuguese. There's Hirith, and that's Welsh. 
There's Faunve, which is German. There's Tasca, Russian, and Natsukasashi, Japanese. And it's like they all have different etymologies and directions, but they're conveying the sense of human beings across the world and in different cultures have a similar emotional capacity and experience and longing and are wrestling with ways to define it. And when they do, it's really helpful and successful for that culture to go, yes, we all are experiencing this longing for something that we maybe have never experienced. It's a more nuanced, engaged tool that brings connection and connects you to your story to others. Yes, the Anglo-Saxons call it ubisunt, where is it? The Finns call it kaukukaipu. It's like the worst Finnish that's ever been said. Kaukukaipu. <laughs> kaukukaipu. <laughs> I don't know how this word should be said, but the Finns have a word for it. And here's the problem. You know what word we use? Nostalgia. A word that has been used so much, it's functionally useless. Because when someone makes a film in an old style, it's called nostalgic. Right. But when we think about a future that has already been lost to a past generation, like early American optimism. Mm -hmm. We call that nostalgia too. And it's so irritating because what you do is you sneak in this view of humans and you go, yep, humans are these sentimental, always looking backward, there's nothing there, and go, you are not giving me any reason to accept your worldview. You're just calling it nostalgia. Your word sucks. I like ubisunt. And this understanding that we're situated between an Eden that's lost and an anticipation of restoration. Right. And there's probably some folks going, well, that's just a failure of English because some of those other languages, particularly like German, can just take can different take words, words and just... smoosh them together. And that sucker can be so freaking long by the end. But it's, it's the same thing with Japanese. Like people are always having their minds blown about there's this new Japanese thing. And I'm like, yeah, but they're just two different words that they've smushed together that are very literal. And that when you put them together, they have this other cultural meanings. Like that's I understand you can kind of go, this is a failure of English, but it, it isn't. It's a cultural failure because when's the last time that you tried to describe this, the same thing with just multiple words. What if you didn't go down the nostalgia route? You're like, okay, I am experiencing grief and hope and longing and disappointment all at once. And I can picture the mountains of Colorado in the summer, but it's not, it's not any specific memory. And I feel this longing to have it again and sort of a, a disappointment knowing that it can't happen forever. We end up writing an article about that to try to like flesh out that we end up telling a story about it because we're trying to convey and the other person across the table might be like yes thank you but that wasn't just one word and instead if you went in there with like the blind the blindfolded kid with the bat trying to swing at this concept like a pinata you're like i i don't know i'm feeling this sense of listlessness you're like okay that's that's probably the the effect of not having the language to describe where you are. I wonder actually how much of our uh, grief or disillusionment or feeling lost is actually a failure of language because we are disconnected from our story and our, our hearts in that moment. That's good. Culture and language, they go together, man. 
Yeah, totally do. Can I riff through a few? Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, you got a bunch more? I have a bunch more. <laughs> Tiffany Watts-Smith, The Book of Emotions. Yeah. Uh, she has a TED Talk that kind of got me going on this track, too. And some of the, they're so interesting because what she points out is you can't break these down into smaller constitutive parts without actually sacrificing the concept in the meantime. And like this kind of thing of you can look at a sheep, but you can't break it apart and still have a living sheep. It, the reality of upward emergence, which we're going to talk about here in another podcast in a bit sometime during the summer. All right, here's a fun one. Uh, all of these are going to be m- mispronounced. Sorry to the native language speakers. How about Ngulu? Ngulu, uh, the Pintapi people in Australia. This is the feeling of unease you have when you suspect a person is seeking revenge. Mm. Ngulu. And you're out on a walk at night and you go, are you just feeling scared? No, no, no. You're feeling a, a complex matrix of... Emotion. Probably some culpability there too, folks. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) That emotion doesn't come without a cause. (laughs) It's revenge after all. Uh, Basorexia, the desire to kiss someone. This one is sneaking in, you know, more in in English usage. As is like with an emotion, ringsiety, you know, things do sneak back into English. Oh, we already talked about koshleg, kozleg, the feeling of coziness that helps Scandinavian cultures endure long winters is this rich cultural development and exploration of what it means to be safe. Uh, here's a really interesting one. So one of the earliest texts on anger is from Seneca, Greek, and Ira, and just, no, De Ira. I'm just really glad it came back to the Greeks. Mm. Um, but he, when he describes anger, he describes uh, being full of this monstrous urge to destroy. And he goes, it's like the nostrils flare. It's this intense embodied experience that I look at and go, hey, yeah, the, the development of the exploration of anger links so well with uh, like the Hebrew conception of kata, which we've talked about s- one of the words for sin being this creature, this power that is ready to devour. Um, but of course, if the only word you have is anger, you can't differentiate between positive, negative, life force, not life force, monster, not monster. Right, because there's righteous anger and then there's destructive anger. Uh, here's a word that I looked at and I thought you would be really glad to have it from now on because you're so sentimental. Oh, uh, Fago. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Fago, the Ifaluk people, small tribe uh, in Oceania, Carolina Islands. Is it foggy there? <laughs> it's Fago. I have no idea how wow, to actually say it. Dad jokes. The funny thing is, uh, yeah, there was Caroline Lutz, was an anthropologist who went and embedded herself with this people, trying to go, how do your words connect to your cognition, connect to your culture? And then how could I write them down with English letters? Fago, but it's this combination of compassion, sadness, and love. And it can work two ways, probably more than two. Um, Fago is the experience, the piercing experience of joy you have when you also realize that it's going away right in that moment. 
Oh yeah, experience that basically all the time. <laughs> you just shout out to my fours out there. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. Uh, it can also be it's also so beautiful. This simultaneous recognition that there is widespread suffering that can be helped through compassion, and it, and so it's hard. But it's so fascinating when you go, there is a whole group of people yeah. who when you say Fago, they're like, oh man, I know what that's like. Right. Oh, when you see someone with a hurt leg and it suddenly all of the suffering of humanity hits you, but you're simultaneously impacted by the power of human beings to restore alongside God. Okay. Hard pause. You cannot be empathetic if you are estranged from your own emotions, if you have not ex- if you've not experienced them, named them, dwelt in them, inhabited them, and actively walked in them, how can you possibly expect to empathize with someone else's story, someone else's joy, someone else's suffering? So, Fago is this, I know what it's like to love a moment and feel its passing, and therefore, they can do that for everyone else because greater suffering is a category because personal suffering is more complex. Unpause. Huge. Most cultures identify hunger as an emotion. Hanger? Luke calls it <laughs> oppression. He, he gets depressed when he hasn't been eating. Okay, right, because we have neurochemical slash like neurobiological models of human selfhood, so we go, ugh. My glucose is low, therefore I'm not capable of generating a lot of, like, whatever. My gut flora aren't happy. And I go, hang on. Well, that's true. Let's look around at humanity and go, that's a reductionist state that, while accurate, does not describe the totality of experience and go, um, go to Papua New Guinea. Go to the binding people there. And that uh, the word for hunger is the same word for the fear you've been abandoned. Mm. And that often... There is a close connection between hunger and the desire to be cared for. Sure. Which so identifies with uh, when we talk about being satisfied in God who calls himself the El Shaddai. And you go, oh my gosh, our hunger is really associated with our question, does anyone see my need, which we've talked about. And we're not, and then you can track it, you can go, I have physical hunger. But, you know, what about when Bruce Springsteen, we have a hungry heart? Like this desire to be cared for. Oh my goodness, that that really helps me go like when I'm feeling restless in this like this hunger or what we call thirst for adventure. I'm like, is a thirst for adventure really something that can be quenched by doing an adventure? Or is when I say a thirst for adventure closely connected uh, like with my desire for intimacy in the wilderness? Right. So the Papua New Guinea tribe, hunger for them is totally connected to safety and satisfaction. For those of us in the first world, how many times have you finished a meal? How many times have I finished a meal? And then like gone looking in the pantry or the the refrigerator for the thing that will satisfy. I may have a full belly, but clearly my hunger actually wants satisfaction not just input. Boom. Uh, this is a fun one. Ijirashi. 
again being said totally wrong. <laughs> wow, the Japanese it's it's consonant vowel consonant vowel. Like, you know, you can only go so wrong. Or sometimes vowel consonant. Yeah, it's just uh, this is like when you're deeply moved to the point of maybe you're choked up when you watch an underdog win against overwhelming odds. Mm. And, and you go, thank you for that word that when you watch in some tournament. The or t- pick a movie from the last 15 years. Goodness, goodness, goodness. When you watch Miracle on Ice 10 years ago. That Cinderella Man. And, and you go... Why do I feel, why am I crying, except the only thing that's happened is a guy has, like, I don't feel relief. I don't even feel that much, I feel joy, but I also feel this ijirashi, this, like, oh, what happens when the heart identifies the mixture of, uh, like, victory, compassion, uh, something something about God is being expressed to you in that moment, and you go, by the way, this is the arc for like 90% of Japanese literature, at least especially modern stuff, modern films and animation. Introduce character, show that character is completely overmatched by life or foe, have completely unmatched hero, discover power within and defeat. And everyone's like, yes, best new thing ever. You're like, okay. Yes. Okay. And I mean, you mentioned Sorry earlier. for being reductionist, but there you go. Cultures identify and carry dimensions of humanity, and it's funny because if you were, if you were, to say, but everybody loves an underdog story. Go <laughs> well. First of all, why do they love it to the point to have a word for it? Also, why do they have Ijirashi and the Greeks have catharsis? It's just like, oh, you know that feeling you get when you watch someone murder someone, and you kind of wanted them to do it, but also you felt guilty, and then at the end of it. They get captured, and you feel like you've been cleansed somehow. <laughs> I can just imagine someone sitting there going, I've never felt that in my life. Hmm. Except spend enough time experiencing what they're pointing to in human experience, and you'd be like, oh, my gosh. I totally get that moment. Like, Right. Go read Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. There's probably some listeners who, in an episode about emotion, we're expecting us to go a slightly different direction because the anxiety, depression podcast, probably series is coming, has been on our whiteboard since the beginning. Um, in the in the first world, the the effects and prominence of this, both of these and of suicide are staggering and have affected our stories personally immediately and with varying degrees of connection and Colorado Springs is an epicenter the United States the UK epicenters of this and so the emotional state that is depression and anxiety of being suicidal these are things that we we want to flesh out more and want to to pull in other minds and to to weigh in on um so if you were hoping for us to touch on those in this i'm sorry that we're not um hopefully some of the things we've talked about peripherally do affect your understanding of of why there might be pressure getting put on these emotional states these mental states these physical states but i'm sorry that we didn't go into that more because i know that there is a desire for that and 
we've done interviews on it. Uh, so I don't know why we haven't done it sooner. So forgive us. It's coming. Perhaps there's a word for uh, sort of the hope deferred, making the heart sick. I'm sure someone has it. Probably not. The thing that I think in reviewing emotions is that in growing in understanding our own heart, growing and understanding our emotions, just the concept you have a heart, everyone feels emotions. If you don't, that's telling you about a profound level of disconnection with your own being. Yeah, we don't throw around the phrase emotionally stunted as a compliment. And it's important to return to that emotions, like they come in in a truck and hidden in the truck is is a worldview, is an assumption about what it means to be a person, what people are for. And I think that in uh, converging upon a worldview that is actually consistent with the larger story of Jesus, we sort of do have to name that an emotion is both a state, we call them emotional states, I am angry, and it's a signal. I feel angry. So it can tell you something about your experience, and it can be an experience itself. Understanding it's both is really helpful because Dallas Willard writes that when you feel anger, anger tells you that the self is being transgressed and it raises this flag for your evaluation. And he goes, anger is not meant, we're not meant to sit in anger. Uh, anger is, is a really important woo, flag goes up, tells us something is wrong. We acknowledge the flag and then we evaluate what's wrong and go. So if, and if you're, if you're never angry, then you sort of have a problem with being disconnected with how wrong the world is. Um, it's a signal. Understanding emotions is a signal and an opportunity for evaluation. Helpful. Um, because also, you know, we, we mentioned Kata, but really fascinating uh, Hebrew literature, how much emotions can be things that you feel or sense or perceive, therefore external to you. And they are things that happen to you where, like, your your heart becomes heavy. Your heart literally breaks. Uh, you are filled up with grief. And so these things actually fill your embodied experience. The complexity of emotion is really helpful to name, again. For people that are not engaging their emotion, that scenario of, I am angry, it goes back to, like, you, you will be a ship tossed at sea if you are not engaging it. Um, you will experience the anger. You may act out of it. You may have the enemy jump all over you and begin accusing you for being such an angry person. Um, but it will rule you. Our emotions are not meant to rule us. If you have begun to study your heart and begun to study your story, the anger comes up and you can instead, maybe not right then, maybe a couple minutes later, go, what about that was making me angry? Was, was it actually a, a fight response to a form of accusation that goes way back in my story? Or was it some other nuanced piece? Like they are, they are stimuli that we are meant to see the flag and inform parts of our world. They're not all just jet fuel being poured onto our engines and they do, I'm a metaphorist, you guys. I, I, I sometimes I just live in the world of metaphor. I don't understand 
why we all don't. But this is a conversation about words and expression, so deal with it. We've had lots of conversations in our family, large and small, new and old, about that we are these spirit, soul, mind, body, heart, will beings, and consecrating your emotions. There are people that will feel things stronger than others. We all feel emotions. We all feel experiences. There are some people that have, uh, there's a wonderful person in the community who says that she has the gift of feel. Like they're just, their hearts are on their sleeves. And have you consecrated that? Have you begun to integrate that with the whole picture of you? Because it, it is part of our whole functioning. Like you can't just be mind and neglect the heart. You can't just be body and neglect the mind. Like you're going to have things falling apart. And so this emotional awareness health is, is this part of your, your language, this part of your heart, this part of your whole complex being that is really all needing to be consecrated, all needing to run well. Um, if you look at the life of Jesus who modeled what restored humanity is like, he experienced the full, we say the full spectrum of emotions. He modeled emotion in almost every story that's shared about him, from grief to surprise, to anger, anguish, joy, sympathy. Almost every story has this heart that is present and responding and sometimes needing to name the experience that he's having to help the people around him be like, well, how did people know that he was astonished at the faith of the centurion? He had to say it or he had it on his face or like there's something about what Jesus is modeling that invites us into, you don't just get to shut this down and be afraid of certain emotions or be afraid of the waters beneath, beneath the shallows of your heart and have that be okay. You're neglecting massive parts of yourself. Maybe the one other thing I would throw into the worldview conversation, things that are just good to know about being a person who is therefore an emotional being is you can feel other people's emotions. We've identified this as emotional contagion, sometimes AKA as emotional contamination. And while that is a good ability for people to be able to connect, even people you're not with, like you get off the phone with a particular cousin and then you return to the project and you're just, that you were working on, but now you're full of anger and you go, well, wait a minute, there is something in their experience that is transferring to me. I mean, we could kind of go into the deep worldview there, but it is really helpful to know you don't have to be actually just thrown one way and another in your internal world. Like you grow in understanding, you grow in identifying states and how it works, and you kind of grow in the management, not suppression, but engagement. And I can tell you how helpful it is to go, man, I feel so frustrated. Wait a minute. Jesus, this doesn't feel like my emotion. This doesn't feel like the way that this experience impacts me. Is this somebody else's? And I'm like, yeah, it's X person's and I wanted you to know blank about them. And I go, great. Okay, well, with blessing, just pray like, I am crucified to the world. Every claim that can be made against me, Colossians 2, is canceled in the cross. And with love and blessing, I just forbid their emotion to transfer to me and my family. 
it is incredibly effective because then you don't, you know, you don't leave the interview and find yourself, man, why am I feeling so depressed? I don't normally feel depressed, but my whole day is just tanking and go, there's, there are emotions just out there. And, you know, if you also listened to the Ransom Tart podcast and caught the Spiritual Warfare series, we dove into the fact that emotional and relational assaults are both explicitly addressed in Paul's letters. And when he talks about conflict rearing among people, and he talks about forgive, that the person may not sink into estrangement, for we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. And he understands that trying to pull the emotional lever and trying to pull it through people is something that the enemy does. Know that, you can avoid it. You need to become a student of your heart and your emotions because, as Blaine just mentioned, the enemy will be. Marketing is all the time. Are you aware that when you log into your computer that your emotions are trying to be used to buy, vote, uh, spend time in certain areas? People try to do this. And so if you are not actually aware of your emotions and other people are more aware of them, you are going to be a very vulnerable and susceptible human being as you try to navigate through what is the modern paradigm that has been simplified to emojis, but actually is this complex, nuanced, beautiful waters that are your heart and that we have a posture of you need to spend some time there because it is central. And the more you know it, the more you understand it, the more connected you can be. 